So we are going through 2 Peter. We're going to finish chapter 2 today. We're going to finish the book by the end of November. Um, believe it or not, we should be able to do chapter 3 in, in two weeks. And then we're going to go into an Advent series leading up to Christmas. Um, if you don't have a scripture journal, there were printouts of the scriptures in the foyer. I don't know if they're still there or if they've been taken, but feel free to grab one of those. But today we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 17 to 22, so just those last couple of verses. Um, you know, everybody's different, and I remember when I was in school growing up, when I was in middle school, high school, let me back up. I remember when I was, I was born at a very young age, guys, and I remember, <laughs> no, I remember when I was a little kid and Nintendo came out, and I remember... I was at ShopRite, and at ShopRite, they used to sell video games. Does anybody remember that? They were, like, kept behind, like, the, like the glass cabinet, like, where you, would, you could buy, like, get your film dropped off. You know, you want to get that film dropped off because maybe one picture worked out, and you could buy Nintendo games. You could probably buy, like, some cupcakes back there. I don't know. All the stuff you put behind glass doors. And I remember there was a game that I saw the picture, and I don't even remember what the picture was, but it was called Dragon Warrior. And I remember begging my parents for that game, and I think I found, like, an advertisement for it in Nintendo Power, and I would just, like, fold it up and put it under my pillow. I was probably six or seven years old, super excited, and I eventually got that game um, for my birthday and was so jazzed about it. And that began a pursuit of all things geeky for a very long period of time. And I remember being in middle school and going down the bus, and we went to a district high school, so there was like seven high schools, or seven districts that all went to one high school, right? So the bus ride took, it felt like it took like 45 minutes. It probably was actually five minutes, but it felt like 45 minutes. And I remember looking out at the wild, the wilds of Warren County, where I grew up, um, which is the part of New Jersey that thinks it's West Virginia, if you've never been there. And, um, and I remember thinking, man, life would be a lot more exciting if goblins, dragons, the undead, these things were real. <laughs> and I used to daydream what it would be like to go to school and to also have to bring a sword because you don't know what's going to come out of those woods across the Musconet Kong River. You just don't know. And, you know, I remember growing up and my friends and I playing tabletop games and role-playing games and all kinds of things, and it was really a world of imagination, a world of imagination, whether it was video games or books, movies, whatever it might be, or just making up adventures in the woods, you know, across from where um, my house was and just exploring and making forts and all these kinds of things. And when I look at my life, I feel like a lot of my life is trying to claw back to something through imagination. And J.R. Tolkien, who's the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings, um, it wasn't originally a movie, um, the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings, and forget that garbage on Amazon, um, the, the, guy, <laughs> the guy who wrote Lord of the Rings, he said that within us is a deep call for Eden, the Garden of Eden, and we're constantly trying to get back to Eden. 
And I think for a lot of my life, that's what that was. All of those imaginative escapes were just trying to get back to something that was lost, something that's deep within our psyche, that were part of a greater story, that were part of this large um, archetype of adventure. And so much of my life was trying to get back there in little bits and pieces. Can anybody relate to this idea if, you're, if you know you like to read or watch movies? The rest of you guys are dead to me. Um, I'm willing to bet you're more like me than you might want to admit out loud. Maybe for you it's just something different because, you know, you might think it's weird that I would think about fighting, you know, gremlins with a sword. I think it's weird that anybody would watch football for nine hours, you know? And so I think we escape into different things depending on our personalities. And so maybe it isn't necessarily uh, a fantasy movie or or a book, but it might be a chick flick, it might be sports, it might be any manner and number of things. The characters change, but the desire to escape remains the same. You see, I think the point is that we're constantly trying to escape this broken world, but we often find ourselves turning to captivity instead of turning to the true path of freedom and escape. So we see these things and we say, this is going to enable me to escape. But then after we're deep within it, what we realize is we just wound up captive again. And that's really what this passage is all about. As we look at this passage from 2 Peter chapter 2, um, it's all about the fact that these false teachers promise escape. But at the end of the day, where their words lead to is slavery. And so I'm just going to read these verses, and then we'll break them down. These, he's referring to the teachers, verse 17, chapter 2, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if they, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it, is, for it would have been better for them to never have known the way of righteousness than, after knowing it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. In other words, to live a holy life. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So verse 17, he says, these false teachers, they, these are waterless springs, misdriven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. You know, a spring is by definition a place where water wells up from an underground source. Um, and I, I was thinking about this, and, you know, I've seen and dug wells in my day, but a spring is different because you don't have some kind of pump drawing the water out. I think the only time I actually really experienced the spring was when Gina and I lived in Spain, 
And we were, it was in the middle of the summer, and we brought our youth group in Spain to the middle of the mountains to a mountain range called Sierra de Cazorla. And we went there with these kids to just go camping. And it was like 110, 115 degrees, no joke. And one day we decided to hike eight miles, because it seemed like a good idea at the time, and um, up the spring. And we got to the fountainhead of this spring, and everybody's drenched in sweat. And at that point in time, we say, let's go jump in this, this body of water. And as soon as the kids started jumping in, immediately one of the girls starts going, me pica, me pica, me pica, because it was so cold that it was like you're getting attacked by needles. That's how cold the water was. It had to have been in the 40s. I mean, it was frigid. But then once you got to the top, and then the spring came out of the depths of this mountain and it formed this beautiful lake, and you could just literally bend over and drink the water because they would bottle it right there. Um, they would bottle it for, for distribution. And the point is that it was beautiful, it was potable, in other words, you could drink it, it was frigid, but it was refreshing at the same time. Now, so if you think about what Peter is saying, he says, these are waterless springs. So by definition, a waterless spring is not a spring at all. Instead, it would, you'd see the sign on the hike that says spring, the fountainhead, right? The nacimiento is up there, and you're just going to keep walking up and up and up. But then you get there, and instead of finding a spring, you find a pitfall that's just dangerous and destructive. And it promised refreshment, and it promised that water to drink, but instead it gave you nothing, which means that it was pointless and useless and a hazard instead of a source of life. And so these teachers, that's exactly what they are. They're waterless springs that they promise something, but they don't deliver. The same way, Peter says, they are mists driven by a storm. In other words, you're a farmer waiting for those rains, and you see the clouds in the distance, and you know that the relief that you've been praying for and the water that you've been praying for is finally on the horizon, and then in comes the wind, and it just pushes the clouds past, and no rain actually comes. The point is that the false teachers fail to deliver what they promise. They promise something, but it doesn't provide it. Well, what do they promise? Well, what false teachers promise, according to 2 Peter, is they promise escape. They promise pleasure. They promise life. You see, what is the purpose of teaching what is the purpose of education within the church? Or we could say in the greater body of 2 Peter, what is the purpose of knowledge? Because that's a continuing theme in knowledge in the first few verses, in the last few verses. What is the point of knowledge? Well, Peter tells us in chapter 1, verse 2, that knowledge, mainly knowledge of Jesus Christ, is to lead us to true salvation instead of religiosity, which destroys you because religion damns you, but a relationship with Christ forgives you. He says in verse 3 that the knowledge of Jesus, this is, by the way, this isn't knowledge up here. This is an intimate knowledge. This is the way that I know my wife, right? I know about President Obama or Biden or Trump. I know about them, but I don't know them, right? But I know 
the people who are close to me. This is that kind of knowledge. That kind of knowledge gives us what we need, Peter says in chapter 1, verse 3, for growing in godliness. In other words, maturing to become more like the person God created you, designed you to be. Verse 5 of chapter 1, that knowledge is a supplement to virtue to make us more mature. Verse 6 of chapter 1, knowledge leads to being more controlled over yourself. And ultimately, we see there in chapter 1 that knowledge leads to escape from the corruption that is in the world caused by sinful desire. And so the point is this, knowledge is integrally connected to escape. The heretical teaching gave false knowledge that promised false escape from the very real woes of life, but it never delivered. It was all an illusion like waterless springs or clouds driven along by the wind. Gene Green, who was a commentary writer, he said this, heterodoxy, in other words, heretical teaching, heterodoxy is all very novel in the classroom, but it is extremely unsatisfying in the parish. In other words, it's fun to discuss heretical teachings at the university level, but it's rather unhelpful in real-world scenarios. To put it more directly with an example, trying to justify your, sex, your sexual sin might give you a fleeting moment of pleasure, but when it destroys your family, reality sets in. In other words, you were promised one thing but received something else because false teaching promises one thing but delivers another. Verse 18, for speaking loud boasts of folly or foolishness, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So false teachers come, and how do they convince people? You know, we see these stories of people who join cults and they fall prey to all kinds of craziness. I mean, we see it all the time in the news. And so how do they do it? Like, tell me so we don't get tricked. Well, the first thing it says is they speak loud boasts or closer to the Greek, this idea of high sounding, swollen words of futility. In other words, they are excellent communicators, and they're like snake oil salesmen. You guys probably have seen, you know, some kind of Western movie where the guy comes into town with the car, and he's like, hey, you got your snake oil. This will fix all your ailments, right? You won't be bald. You'll grow tall, all these kinds of things. They're, they're snake oil salesmen who, with cleverness of speech, they can convince you to buy into what they want. Can I tell you that as a church culture, we are obsessed with people who are gifted communicators, even when they tell us nonsense. Otherwise, Joel Osteen wouldn't be the most watched pastor slash heretic on the, in the country. I mean, when we played that game on our podcast, Guess the Heretic, and you could guess Joel Osteen within six words. Because it's really great to say if you follow Jesus, you're going to get first-class upgrades, unless you live in Afghanistan, and then you follow Jesus, and you know what happens? you get decapitated. And so if it's not true all over the world, it's not true, Joel. And so you can feel free to zip your mouth shut if you're listening. False teachers appeal to their audience with beautiful words, promising more than they can actually deliver. 
Second thing is this, they entice people with permission to pursue passion. False teachers entice people with the permission to pursue passion. Listen, I'm going to tell you the truth. Everybody, everybody in this room, including myself, every human being alive battles against the passions of the flesh. The eye never has enough seeing. The ear never has enough hearing. The stomach never has enough food. The body never has enough. And self-control is to control yourself instead of letting your flesh control you and your flesh telling you what to do. Even to your kids, right? All the time I say to Eden, you need to know when to stop, right? Or as my mom used to say to me, the first time it's funny, the second time it's kind of funny, and the third time it's a spanking, right? You need to know when to stop. Everyone fights this. Everyone fights against the passions of your flesh. But the false teachers, they say, here's freedom so you can indulge in your flesh. Here's freedom so that you can do whatever you so desire. Another writer, Charles Big, wrote this. Grandiose sophistry is the hook. Filthy lust is the bait with which these men catch those whom the Lord had delivered or was delivering. So who do they target? They target those who are desperate for escape. If you look at Peter's description, these are brand new believers who don't know enough of the word to argue or to know if they're being tricked. They're weak believers like wounded sheep who are struggling with sin and are being taken advantage of. This would be like going to an addiction meeting to look for someone to sell drugs to. That's what these false teachers were like. They would go to an NA meeting to try to find people they could sell narcotics to taking advantage of people who are already trying to wrestle through struggles. They come alongside weak and wounded people with cleverness of speech, and they give them permission to do what they want. And their victims aren't strong enough or they don't know enough to say no. Be on guard. So how do we avoid being like one of these people who are taken advantage of? It goes back to chapter 1, verse 3. What is chapter 1, verse 3? God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. And therefore, supplement your faith with virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance. And if you do these things, you'll never fall away. I mean, Peter tells us what to do, and then he warns us of the things that are going to come to attack us. The point is this. Because of Jesus Christ, you are able to be in his presence. And like the author of Hebrews says, therefore, let us now draw near and keep drawing near until the day of his return. You guys following me? Thanks for the encouragement. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. This is the key this is the key sentence right here. If you're going to remember anything, if you're going to highlight anything, if you're going to get a tattoo for whatever overcomes a person, 
to that he is enslaved. To whatever controls a person, to that he is enslaved. You see, what you think is freedom, what the false teachers were promising as freedom, wasn't actually freedom. It was all a lie. And that's important for us to realize because in our own culture, the world says, this is freedom. You have freedom to do this. You have freedom to buy this. You have freedom to eat this. You have freedom to partake of this. And in our own desire to justify our flesh, you know what we do? We walk through that door. And then once we get through the door, and anyone who's ever struggled with addiction knows exactly what I'm talking about. As soon as you walk through the door, you realize it wasn't freedom. It was a total bait and switch. And now I'm in chains. I mean, look at what our culture says. You have freedom to take puberty blockers without any consequence in the long term. That's a lie. It will only lead to slavery. Freedom to mutilate your body without recourse is not true. Freedom to change your gender without any kind of consequence. Freedom to sleep with whoever you want doesn't matter. I read that STDs are at their highest now than they have been in decades. I wonder why. While I was preparing this sermon, I read an article about uh, these dating apps that are common with people who are in their 20s. And one article was talking about one person, one case study person, a girl, a woman, 76 different partners in three months. This is the norm now. This is the world, and it's the promise of freedom, but do you know what it actually is? Slavery. It's slavery. Freedom to sleep with whoever you want, freedom to cheat on your spouse because it's more thrilling, thrilling. freedom to eat what you want, drink what you want, do what you want, spend what you want without consequence. It's all lies of freedom where people say, I'm free to do whatever I want. Well, you are free to do whatever you want, but everything isn't beneficial for you. And some things dive headfirst into slavery. See, the point is this. None of that's freedom. It's just chains. And in the end, it destroys. You see, the teachers, these false teachers, they once wanted freedom, but now they are slaves. They once wanted escape, but instead they found shackles. And misery loves company. And so now they convince other people to join them in their folly. Because if people join us in our foolishness, do you know what? We can justify anything, can't we? Just a couple of idiots on a boat, right? Doing what they shouldn't do. Verse 20 to 22. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the, of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ... They are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after, turning it, after, after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its vomit. The so, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So Peter said in chapter 1, verse 4, that we have escaped from the corruption caused by our own evil desires. 
And that escape happens because of a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, which we have. And so the idea here is that we place our faith in Jesus for salvation and the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is this, not go to church and learn a new set of rules. The gospel is that Jesus died on a cross so that you could be forgiven, that Jesus was raised from the dead so that you could live forever, and that he sends his Holy Spirit to empower you to live today while you wait for his return. The good news is that I don't have to stand before God and pay the penalty for my sin. The false teacher said, therefore, do whatever you want. But that's not what the scriptures teach. So we place our faith in Jesus for salvation and forgiveness. He gives us his spirit, which then changes our appetite. Because now when we do something that is not what God would have us do, the Holy Spirit kind of gnaws at your heart. He convicts you. And what didn't, that didn't bother you five years ago or a year ago, but now when you do it, all of a sudden it bothers you. And that's the Holy Spirit subtly nudging you, pushing you towards becoming more like Christ instead of going deeper down the rabbit hole into slavery. And so now, as someone who has the Holy Spirit, we want to change. Now, there's plenty of failure to go around where change does not happen the way we all would desire, but the desire to change is there, whereas before there wasn't even a desire to change. There was just a desire to go deeper into my own sin. We escape from the desires of the world caused by corruption because we begin to desire God instead of desiring corrupt things. We escape from the defilement of the world because we've been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And so Peter's saying, this is the, this is the process here of being made right with God and being transformed. And he's saying, when we, if we know this and we turn back from it, it's utter foolishness and folly. And I was thinking about how to explain this. I was thinking about the story of the prodigal son, which, you know, maybe some of you know, maybe some of you don't. And the story of the prodigal son is a, a parable that Jesus tells. And in this parable, the, the sons represent humanity and specifically Israel, but for our principal purposes, represent humanity, and the father in this story represents God. And the story goes something like this, that there was a man who had two sons, and the one son, he came to his father and he said, look, give me my inheritance early so I can go out and I can sow my royal oats. And the father agrees to it, and so he gives him his share of the inheritance, and it says that the, the son went into a faraway country, and he just squandered all of his money on reckless living and partying, spring break lifestyle, right? He went and had spring break in Ibiza uh, for a couple months, and then he ran out of money, all right? And so that's basically what happened. And then he finds himself with no money, estranged from his family, and a famine hits the land. And he says, I got to get a job. I've never had a job before, but I'm going to get a job. And the only job he can find is feeding pigs, which the Jews weren't even allowed to be around pigs because they were unclean animals. And as he's pouring the slop and the carob pods into the trough to feed the pigs, he's looking at the pig slop, and he's thinking to himself, if I could just eat some of that slop, because he's so hungry. 
And in that moment, he has a eureka moment, and he says, look, okay, I made some bad choices. I'm going to go home to my father, and I'm going to ask him if I can be one of his servants instead of being his son. And he starts to walk back, and his father was waiting for all those years, months, however long it was, was waiting and waiting and waiting. And it says his father saw him at a faraway distance. And the father, remember, who represents God, ran to the son. And before the son could even get his apology fully out of his mouth, says, Father, I've sinned against you. The father throws his robe over him, puts a ring on his finger, walks him back to the house, commands his, his, his workers to kill the fattened calf to celebrate because the son who was lost has come home. It's a beautiful story of the mercy of God, that, that the son doesn't come home and apologize and the dad doesn't go, well, you have to prove you're really sorry. But instead, the, the father just is overjoyed that the son has returned. Now imagine after that prodigal after that story, if the next thing that happened in the story is the prodigal son woke up the next morning and he said, ooh, that was a good meal. I think I'll go back to the pig pen. And then he just walked back to the pig pen, took off the robe, and just sat in the slop trough and went back to that way of life. Now, wouldn't that be a tragedy instead of a beautiful story? And that's exactly what Peter is saying. He's saying, if, they, if the prodigal son came to the father and then the next day got up and went back to the pig pen and decided he was going to go hang out in the trough, all he would be proving is that his repentance or his, I'm sorry, dad, wasn't genuine. Because if it was genuine, he would have stayed with the father. But the fact that he goes to the father and then turns around and returns to the muck and the mire, that just shows that his repentance was never true in the first place. He hasn't really changed at all. He proved that he had worldly sorrow instead of godly sorrow. And that's the danger here that Peter's getting at. He's not talking about a loss of salvation. He's talking about people who had an emotional experience. They could answer some checkbox questions about who God is, what the gospel is, but it was never real in their heart. And what a tragedy to know the truth about Jesus in your mind, but never actually have it sink to your heart so that it becomes real and changes you from the inside out. So we have... In this chapter, we have the false teachers, first paragraph, the false teachers gave in to their sinful urges and they justified it with false teaching. The second paragraph talks about, well, why doesn't God just squash everybody today? And he says, God knows how to tolerate the wicked and preserve the righteous for, ju uh, for judgment and forgiveness. And then paragraph three, last week, we looked at how the false teachers think they're intelligent, but they actually behave and think like animals. And then today, the idea is this. False teaching promises freedom, but it delivers slavery. And you juxtapose that or compare that to righteous teaching, which is led by the truth of the word and actually can guarantee real freedom. False teaching promises freedom, but gives you slavery. Gospel-centered, word-centered teaching can actually give you, through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, the escape and 
desire for freedom that we actually want. So let's make this practical. One, the only real freedom you're ever going to find is if you surrender your life to Jesus. Everything else is just going to be you white-knuckling it through life, hoping to not pick that back up, to not do that anymore, to hopefully change from here. I'll tell you what the real freedom is, is knowing that I'm going to fail 100,000 times over the course of my life, but there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the real freedom. But as Peter and Paul both say, don't use your freedom as an excuse for sin. And so we have freedom in Christ, freedom from future punishment. But now today we walk forward pursuing maturity, supplementing our faith with the things that Peter outlined in the first chapter of his letter. And so for some self-analysis here, I want you to think through this. It's been a long day. It's been a long week. It's been a long month in your home, your apartment, wherever you live. Or it's been a great day. It's been a great week. It's been a great month. Everything's going dandy. Whether everything is going amazingly well or everything looks like it couldn't get any worse, the question is this. What do you do to escape or reward yourself, which is the same thing? What do you do to escape? And then how do you justify it? Because typically it looks like this. I know from personal experience. I'm going to do this. It's been a terrible day. Or I'm going to do this. It's been a great day. I deserve this. And so we justify investing in escape that we think is going to promise us freedom, but do you know what it actually delivers at the end of the day? a new form of slavery. See, there's nothing wrong with escape and pleasure and moderation. These are gifts from God when they're kept in their proper place. But anything can get twisted into a false god when we worship it and we try to get from this thing something that only God can give us. Remember that your escape of choice promises escape, but deep down it doesn't work. And if you're having a hard time thinking about what these things might be in your own life, Ecclesiastes, which is a wisdom book from the Old Testament, first half of the Bible, gives us some examples of all of the things that we tend to turn to for escape and satisfaction. Things like this, legacy, success, knowledge, wisdom, education, philanthropy, pleasure, study, entertainment, reputation, and so on, and so on, and so on. And when we make any of those things our pursuit in life, thinking this is going to finally give me freedom when I win the $2 billion lottery, which I did try and lost. Shocking. What happens is we just wind up in new entanglement and new slavery because you never feel successful enough. You never feel educated enough. You can never do enough good. Pleasure lasts for a moment, there is wearisome, the author of Ecclesiastes says that endless study is a wearisome task. Entertainment dries up. Vacations only last a week, and so on and so on. You see, false teaching promises escape, but it delivers slavery because it doesn't last, it doesn't satisfy, 
and it often leads us worse than when we started. I want you to know that there are two main slaveries that Christians can fall into. And I'll leave you with this. Paul warns of the danger of rejecting God's grace by trying to earn favor with God. Paul warns of the danger of rejecting God's grace by saying, no, I want to earn it. That's a form of slavery because you can never do enough. Peter warns of the danger of abusing God's grace by using his forgiveness as an excuse to sin. You see, there's a knife sedge in the middle that we walk. And you go too far over here, and you wind up trying to justify your sin with the grace of God. You go over here, and you wind up trying to work really hard to prove that you're worth it. But the gospel is what frees us. It frees us from a checklist. It frees us from that soul-crushing guilt of never being good enough. But it also frees us from the endless pursuit of escape and pleasure. And so we just go back to chapter 1 and remind ourselves of these key truths. Stay close to Jesus. Stay close to his word. Pursue virtue and knowledge and self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection and love. And we do these things, and we will never fall away, and we will never be deceived. Galatians 5.1 summarizes by saying, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. I would encourage you, if you're here today, and if you've never surrendered to Jesus, do so today. He died on a cross for your sins so that you could be forgiven, and now it says he stands at the door and knocks to let him in so that you can be forgiven and you can be given his Holy Spirit to live the life he actually has for you to live. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that you would speak to our hearts, Lord. God, you know us better than we know ourselves, yet you love us. You know all of our blemishes, all of our struggles, all of our difficulties, but still, God, you continue to pursue us and woo us. Father, I pray that you would bring people to your name, to your presence, bring people into your home, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. Free us, God, that we might walk in joy-filled freedom and that we might always remember that you are the better portion. In your name, amen.